Since the COVID-19, everyone's gotten into the act. Elected officials, obviously, as well as doctors, epidemiologists, economists, and pundits. Today's conversation on Hardly Working is with a guest who splits his time between economics and demography. He's also one of Twitter's leading voices analyzing the pandemic and offering trenchant observations on and critiques of how the U.S. and other countries are handling the crisis. All his work is informed by his experience as an American expat living in Hong Kong, where he has seen and lived the COVID-19 pandemic and other previous viral outbreaks. Lyman Stone is an adjunct fellow at AEI, a research fellow at the Institute for Family Studies, and a former international economist at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, where he analyzed the global cotton market. He writes about migration, population dynamics, and regional economics at his blog, In a State of Migration. He also writes regularly for Vox's Big Idea and for The Federalist. His work has been covered in The New York Times and The Wall Street Journal. Most recently, he appeared in The Washington Post, author of an article entitled, Key to a Safe Reopening is Not Distancing, in which he makes a persuasive argument for contact tracing and isolation to bring COVID-19 to heal. I'm Stone. Thank you for joining us here on Hardly Working. My pleasure. You're up relatively late, and we're up relatively early here in the Washington, D.C. area because you're in Hong Kong. We appreciate your your willingness to spare us this hour um, to talk about a number of questions related to the COVID epidemic. We want to get into a number of different areas, including how it's, from your perspective, affecting work life in Hong Kong. But I thought we would start out just by backing up and taking a little bit broader perspective. You have had an interest in this area, I gather, for a while. And I'd like you to just talk about, since you don't have a formal background in epidemiology or virology (laughs) or how you got into this and how you go about studying the challenges associated with pandemics. That's a great question, because especially as COVID has developed, we've sort sort of seen this turf war between like basically epidemiologists and economists. My resume says I'm an economist. Now, it turns out that it's actually kind of a poor description of what I do. I actually pay the bills doing demography. I provide population forecasts and forecasts, and specifically, especially forecasts of specific population movements like births to basically corporate clients and governments. This is what I do day in, day out to support my family is forecast life and death. So I'm not an epidemiologist. I do have an economic background, but I'm not, I'm not actually a working economist at this point. I'm, I'm a, an applied demographer, really. Which means that I spend all my days poring over birth and death data and migration data as well, understanding the data sources as best I can and figuring out what relationships exist to help us predict them. That is, I don't spend as much time troubling myself about all the interesting details of what killed who and that sort of thing. I I tend to be very interested in just knowing how do we predict this headline value of interest? What's the most efficient, most workable model for knowing what the future is going to look like? Because that's what my clients care about. As COVID began in Hong Kong, we had a little bit of a jump on you all in America with this. As my wife was going into labor with our first child, we were getting text messages from friends saying, don't go to the hospital. There's a mystery pneumonia. It's probably SARS. You can go back, the first English language news on this was in late December, and you can go back and you can see, I was tweeting about it in late December, because it was very prominent here in Hong Kong that people were worried about this. 
So that got me interested in it, got me following it very early, and immediately, immediately got me thinking about what is this going to look like for society? I started looking at what data we had on that. Deaths, early on, we were just looking at case data, but it pretty quickly became clear that the case data was, was wonky because of testing problems and things like that. So as soon as possible, I was updating to use the most reliable data we had, which was at first confirmed COVID deaths. But then as we started to get deaths from all cause data available, I switched to using that because that is the variable of interest. What we all want to know is how many people are going to die. I don't think anyone is really deeply invested in whether they died of a heart attack with COVID or whether they died of pneumonia of COVID. That's not really important. What we care about is how many lives terminated before their time. So I was interested in predicting that from a very early period. I don't really have a dog in the fight between like epidemiologists and economists. I'm coming at this as a, as a working demographer, just interested in making sure my clients have good information. And when it comes to COVID-19, my perspective from a pretty early period is that my client is the world that I've been tweeting. At first, it was daily. Now I've switched to weekly threads of just, here's the latest information we have. Here's the latest high-quality, reliable information that we have. And trying to just put that out there freely available and in a pretty accessible way for people. Yeah. So you touched on something I wanted to include in this conversation, which is the of COVID with COVID distinction that people are trying to make. Do you rely on a different measure called excess deaths? Tell us about excess deaths and and why you look at it that way. Right. So trying to track COVID deaths is is like a a significant philosophical problem, right? How do you count a COVID death? Is it anyone that tested positive for COVID and then died? Or is it only people who died of pneumonia-like symptoms and tested positive for COVID? Or is it anyone who dies of pneumonia-like symptoms and doesn't test positive for some other thing? What do you do if there's a household where there's a grandparent and a one-year-old and the grandparent dies of COVID and then the one-year-old starves to death? Did that child die of COVID? So this gets to be a really philosophical problem. What if you have a lockdown? And someone gets shot and we can't get them to the hospital. Did they die of COVID? Or did they die of lockdown? Or did they die of gunshot wound? Right? So this gets to be a really thorny problem. You know, when you add in that we didn't have enough tests early on, and there's false positives and false negatives with tests, and that different governments have different thresholds for who counts as a COVID death, it just becomes a really, really tricky problem. So from a very early period, I was interested in avoiding this problem. So I started collecting as much data as I could on just deaths from all causes, just how many people died of anything. I don't care what. Because here's the thing. There's a very easy way to reduce COVID deaths in any given place to zero. Detonate a nuclear weapon. There will be no COVID deaths. There will only be nuclear weapon deaths, right? But this would obviously not I, I, I don't know if policymakers are going to go for that. Right. So there's an obvious reason we wouldn't do this because the cure would be worse than the disease, right? Everyone would die. So none of us really care. Nobody really cares at like a deep philosophical level whether deaths are of COVID or something else. What we care is, and especially we care about modeling policy interventions like did lockdowns save lives? It doesn't matter if they reduced COVID deaths by increasing some other death. That's not a win. Right. So when we think about especially policies, all we care about is excess deaths. 
is were deaths higher or lower than some reasonable benchmark. A reasonable benchmark might be last year or the average of the last five years or the average of the per capita value for the last five years. You can choose your benchmark different ways. But all that really matters for determining if a policy is successful, if society is handling things well, if we are effectively beating the disease, is are deaths higher or lower than they normally would be at this time of the year? Are they higher or lower than some counterfactual? So this is called excess deaths. And there are a million ways to calculate excess deaths. The upshot of it, though, is that they don't really all disagree very much. They're pretty similar. And pretty much every calculation of excess deaths suggests that COVID deaths have been underreported, that the true death toll of COVID-19 is greater than official COVID deaths. This does not appear to be driven by lockdowns. That is, in places that have lockdowns, but very few confirmed COVID cases, there's no uptick in deaths, right? So we don't see like lockdown death waves in places that had lockdowns, but didn't have a lot of COVID. So excess deaths not associated with COVID are extremely tightly correlated across time and place with confirmed COVID deaths, which suggests it's just deaths that, that we, just didn't, we just didn't get to test. Or they were at home, so we didn't know final symptoms or something like that. What are the numbers in the U.S. then on excess deaths right now? Depending on how you count it, they're somewhere between 120,000 and 160,000. And that would include all of the actual COVID deaths? So excess deaths are a residual, right? I just take deaths this year versus some benchmark period and subtract, which means saying, does that include COVID deaths? Well, COVID deaths are deaths, so by definition, it includes them. But are the excess deaths the COVID deaths? Well, the thing about excess deaths is I can't say that death is an excess death because it's just a residual. It can only be calculated in the aggregate. So mm-hmm. excess deaths are not the same as like premature deaths, right? So premature deaths are where we take someone and we sort of calculate an expected life expectancy for them based on you know, some set of biomarkers. And then we say when they should die, and then we see when they do die, and we say, oh, their death was premature. I'm not doing that. That's vastly more complicated. We've had just over 100,000 so-called COVID deaths, and you're saying that when you look at the population-level data, we're actually probably closer to 150,000. 120, 160, 110, 170, somewhere in there. Yeah, it just depends on what benchmark you use. So I've been fascinated with pandemics for a long, long time. As a friend of mine at the Mercatus Institute, you know, who shares this fascination, said to me, you know, viruses are just really sexy. You know, they, they behave in unusual ways and they do crazy things. We have a fascination with it. What have been kind of the big surprises to you in the way that this has played out, you know, where your expectations have been kind of betrayed relative to what you thought was going to happen? So... I will admit that I thought more U.S. states, that there would be more heterogeneity in policy response. I thought that states would get more creative. I thought that local policymakers would have more idiosyncrasy in their response. I thought that local epidemiologists would, local public health establishments would would have more disagreement and, and experimentation. I did not expect to see nearly uniform agreement in response developed so early and for so wrong-headed a strategy. 
practically the entire nation, except for a few small states, settled on a strategy of locking down all of society indefinitely and not rolling out any program of targeted isolation. Despite the fact that at that time, there was virtually zero academic evidence supporting lockdowns as a strategy and literally millennia of evidence that targeted isolation is an important strategy. I was shocked to find the whole country settle on a strategy that was so costly, so untethered from the scientific literature, and so uniform. That normally, US states have a little more disagreement. Um, but I think it speaks to sort of a shallowing out of the competence of state leadership in America. That so much of our legislation is, is copy-paste, right? It's just legislators literally copying and pasting legislation from other states and passing it and not really thinking very much that states just basically copied and pasted each other. They just followed the leader and did what the other guy did and didn't really, didn't really think about what could we actually do that might actually make a difference. Why do you think that was? I mean, aside from the copy and paste, I mean, there has to be something there besides laziness. I think it's a variety uh, or, of things. Or a failure to think creatively. So I do think part of it is just a deficiency of quality leaders. Also, though, it speaks to a profound decadence, actually, in American policymaking. That from the beginning, we had this mantra, flatten the curve. This was a perverse and destructive piece of public health communication because flattening the curve doesn't save lives. Flattening the curve spaces out hospitalizations. Now, that might save lives if hospitals have highly effective treatments that are capacity constrained. But what we know now and what was actually rather obvious from the beginning is that hospitals did not have highly effective treatments. That in fact, even if you get into a hospital and get on a ventilator, if you have a severe case, that doesn't reduce your death odds all that much. Meanwhile, from a very early period, we were able to tell that suppression was possible. That in fact, there were societies that were beating COVID, like Hong Kong, Korea, Japan, Taiwan, China, Myanmar, Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand, virtually all of Asia. Australia is very close to beating it. New Zealand is quite close. Some of these places like New Zealand have had lockdowns, but most of them have had, if any lockdown, it was like local and for like two weeks, right? Not months on it. Rather, what they all have in common is centralized quarantine, is contact isolation. This strategy is time-tested, it's proven, but it's not what the World Health Organization recommended, at least not where they placed the emphasis of their recommendations. It's not what China was, was propagandizing. And ultimately, it's, it's just not what, it's not what U.S. public health authorities settled on, particularly at the CDC. They settled on lockdowns and widely adopted mitigation measures. So the, the strategy adopted was focused on mitigation rather than suppression. Also, the CDC, you can get on their website today. They had 55 centralized quarantine facilities up through the 1970s. They closed them up in the 1970s. George Bush increased it back up to about 20 sites. W. Bush, not H.W. Bush. But the 20 sites are much smaller than the prior 55. On their website to this day, if you, if you look at why they discontinued these sites, because in the 1970s, the CDC said that infectious disease is a thing of the past. We're never going to have another pandemic. That's what they said. That's what they believed. 
Now, George W. Bush was pretty concerned about epidemic risk, and so he pushed for increasing investments in this. The Obama administration continued that. They didn't expand it, but they, they at least continued this. But frankly speaking, the U.S. public health establishment, it's like the American military in World War I. It just wasn't prepared for the threat. They weren't psychologically prepared. They weren't prepared in terms of having a real battle plan. They weren't prepared in terms of having the weapons in the warehouses and having troops trained for this kind of warfare. There's two different issues there. I mean, there's a lack of preparation, but there's also this element of hubris in looking at the epidemiological, the public health response in 1918 was actually, it bears some of the marks of the same thing that you're talking about here, which was this idea that medicine had advanced so much that we didn't need to worry about epidemic illness anymore. That There was this idea, oh, we, we now have germ theory, so we can, we can manage this. Of and course, in 1918, they thought this it was bacterial. They didn't have the microscopes that could show them what a virus looked like. This is a constant theme. I mean, a continuing theme in these pandemics is this idea that we've arrived kind of at this place where it's well, no longer a threat. And that's exactly just, when you get clobbered with you, it. If you look at the places that had effective responses, South Korea, in 2015, they were hit by a MERS outbreak. And that MERS outbreak led to the fall of the previous government and the election of the current government. So the current government was elected in large part due to the incompetence of the prior government's response to MERS. SARS in Hong Kong and Taiwan and Vietnam gave those societies a wake-up call. In Hong Kong, we were at basically 100% mass compliance on like January 15th. In India, the state of Kerala had the most effective response. The public health minister for Kerala had previously had experience dealing with an extremely severe rare virus outbreak in a different part of the the region just a few years earlier. You look at places that have had effective public health. Kentucky has had one of the more effective responses, has had one of the, the more serious responses. Kentucky, just over the last few years, has had a massive hepatitis A outbreak that led to a deep embarrassment for Governor Bevin and a deep political embarrassment. So the current administration in Kentucky is pretty determined to not be embarrassed in the same way. Prior epidemic experience creates the psychological response among policymakers that they're not going to screw up like the last guy. In a democratic society, that's sort of the function of audit. What went wrong? What do we do differently? Who do we punish for the mistake? And how do we avoid, you know, as a way of not necessarily just punishment, but of educating the governing class about what they need to do differently? So I think that's a really excellent point. So let's talk a little bit more about suppression. I use suppression and mitigation as being interchangeable. You don't. And I thank you for that, helping me think more clearly about that. In suppression, what works, what has worked, what hasn't, and why? If the goal is to eliminate COVID-19 from a society, which I think should be the goal, so if you prefer, if it's, if it's easier, we can say elimination. If the goal is elimination, and that should be the goal, then you basically need three things. Reasonable and moderate social distancing. So no large gatherings, public health advisories, probably cancel school, but you don't necessarily need a lockdown. 
right? You don't need to have like a, no more than two people in public or something. So reasonable and moderate social distancing. You need near universal mask wearing. It's a respiratory contagion. It is spread through respiratory droplets. It's something that it, it spreads during an asymptomatic period. You need to have a universal norm of mask wearing, not just wear a mask if you're sick. Universal norm, because you don't know if you're sick, you don't know if you're contagious. So moderate social distancing, universal mask wearing. And mo- by moderate social distancing, I mean basically cancel school and ban large assemblies. That's it. As in over 100, over 500, what's, what's large? 100, 150, maybe 200. Pick your poison. And then three is contact isolation. You need to have a robust program that anytime someone tests positive for COVID, they are put into a central facility where they are fully isolated from potential contacts. And also everyone they have had contact with is isolated. Having a contact isolation program implies a considerable volume of testing and a very large commitment of manpower for contact tracing. Contact isolation programs also imply a considerable abrogation of privacy rights. That is, information about you may be publicized to the general public if you get sick to facilitate contact tracing. So like in Hong Kong, where I live, we have a website that's updated like every few hours. And if you go to the website, it shows you a little red dot for any building that has been frequented by a person infected by COVID in the last 14 days. And it tells you some details on that person. It tells you their age, their sex, how they got infected, when they got infected, any public transportation they rode, what seat they sat on on public transportation. And that way you can get on and be like, oh no, I was exposed to that person. I should turn myself in. And also like, oh, this building clearly has four infections. I'm not going to visit my friends in that building today. South Korea has an even more invasive system. So contact isolation really has this whole umbrella of other things, testing, tracing, and publicization, really. But people talk a lot about test and trace, like we need to have a gajillion tests. You don't need to have a gajillion tests. If you isolate all contacts, you should test those people because if they test negative, you can let them out. But in a pinch, you can just isolate them for three weeks and then let them out anyway. Right, because after that they're not contagious, or they're prop. They're the chances of so, being contagious are quite low. What do you make of? I mean, one of the I always hesitate to apply any model used by any country in another country, and I, I'm curious what you make of the question of how would we organize and do such a thing in a continent-sized nation with 340 million people in it? Yeah, well, about a dozen states are already doing contact isolation. It requires hiring thousands of workers, which states are actively, you can get on state job websites, they're hiring tens of thousands of contact tracers right now. It's happening. It requires booking up hotels or camps or whatever site you're using. I think hotels are the best option because they're vacant now anyways. So it requires a a financial commitment and it requires doing a lot of tests and it requires organizing things. It requires having an agency that they have a central database where they track every test conducted in the state, who it was of, they match that to a tracing database, and they match that to an isolation database, and they match that to a geospatial database, and they publicize all this stuff. But you know what? This is not beyond us. Literally like two days ago, we sent a rocket to space 
and we had it on a ballistic trajectory to meet another a space station that we have orbiting the Earth, and we got them to touch each other and not crash and transfer people. We did this with billions of dollars. Actually, let me correct that. We did it with $90 million because SpaceX is so much cheaper than NASA. We can do this. This is not rocket science, and we can do rocket science, okay? What I hear you saying is that if we can get a bullet to hit a bullet, we should be able to do this. Let me put it this way. Village leaders in Myanmar figured this out. State governments in the U.S. can. Well, that's an indictment. Okay, so you talked a little bit about Kentucky, which is where you're from, in terms of its relative success and some of the reasons for that. Are there any other states that you would point to where you think there has been either innovation or relative success or something that stands out? So if you look at formal epidemiological estimates of transmission, that is, to what extent are states having active transmission of the, of the disease? The areas, I'm not going to say states, the areas that have had the most effective response to COVID-19 are like Hawaii, Puerto Rico, Guam, Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands, American Samoa, Alaska. There's a common theme in these places. They are isolated. The best responses in terms of reducing transmission from a very high value to a very low value in the mainland U.S., I believe Oklahoma, West Virginia maybe are the the two best performers in terms of reducing transmission from a high value to a low value. In terms of keeping transmission at a low value, so maybe it was never high, but just keeping it low, like Montana is quite high up there. Idaho is pretty good. So I guess what I'm saying is effective response boils down to be an island or very far away from everything. That is, there, there isn't a lot of, like the evidence on policy responses in the U.S. suggests that all the stuff we've done has maybe done a little bit, that like our values have declined by similar amounts in states with very different policy responses. To the extent that any policy is strongly associated with successful reductions in effective R, it appears to be well-implemented travel restrictions. So like Hawaii, like basically forces everyone to quarantine like they're coming from a foreign country. In fact, pretty much all of the island areas have quarantine rules or, or they have effective quarantine rules where like 95% of flights have been discontinued, right? And it's like, well, okay, that's basically a quarantine. Whereas anybody with a land border that a lot of people are crossing, nothing else matters. If you're not controlling imported cases, nothing you do locally matters. It's that simple. Very interesting. So flip it around, look at it from the other angle. What states have you looked at and said, my God, why are they doing that? Every state that implemented a lockdown. As I said, before this epidemic, there wasn't a lot of evidence. There was basically no scientific evidence to support the idea of mandatory at-home household unit isolation as a strategy. You also said that there's no evidence that it made it worse. Is that correct? Yeah, lockdowns probably didn't make it worse. Lockdowns don't make things worse. They may not make things better, but they don't make things worse. No, they just don't do a lot. The recent economic research, by recent I mean like last week, suggests there's debate about whether lockdowns impact the economy or not. They probably impacted a lot less than people think. 
they just don't do very much. I mean, even the evidence on social distancing, like using cell phone data to track people suggests that lockdowns only increase social distancing by like, in, in terms of like, how much is public activity below normal? It only reduces public activity by like a couple of percentage points, a few percentage points. States without lockdowns had activities drop by about 50, 60%. States with lockdowns had them drop by like, 55 or 65%. So like, that's not a a big difference. I was looking at some data yesterday, day before yesterday from Florida. DeSantis has been taking credit for relative success of Florida in this pandemic. But when you look at the data, essentially, the areas where 60% of the cases were kind of not only did the counties lock down rather than waiting for the state to act, the people locked down. Travel in Miami-Dade and Broward and Palm Beach dropped to just about zero by April 1st. And that was when the state lockdown went into effect. Exactly. So that kind of goes to another point that I've seen you make, which is that the public makes its own judgments about this and responds accordingly. Right. right. If, if there is lightning striking every 10 seconds outside, no one's going to go out no matter what the government says. The government can say, oh, it's safe, oh, it's safe, oh, it's safe. But if they see the lightning, no one believes it. Likewise, as the news around March 8th to March 13th, you can see in Google search data, in social distancing data, in for a variety of reasons, March 8th to 13th is this critical window, window where suddenly the media narrative turned. It just flipped on a dime. Suddenly, there was no longer oh, stigma is worse than COVID. It was COVID's going to kill you. You're going to die. And what you can see is social distancing begins at that time almost everywhere. The only place it doesn't begin at that time is California and Washington State, because they are the two places that declared emergencies before then. And so their social distancing begins earlier, and their social distancing begins on the dates when they declared emergencies. I'm from Oregon. I've actually been very, very impressed at how they've managed the, the pandemic. They're sandwiched between two states with a lot of cases but have really kept their caseloads down. I didn't know if there was anything, I haven't followed it that closely, but I don't know if there was anything going on there that was different than what had happened in Washington State, aside from Washington State being the first. Washington State's total caseload actually wasn't very high in some. It was early, but it actually wasn't so bad. The thing to understand about COVID, though, is that when we model an epidemic, you input an R value, which is how many people are infected by each infected person. And we input this as an average, but there's also distributions, right? So in some diseases, almost every infected person will infect a similar number of other people. So that's particularly the case with like vector-borne diseases or airborne diseases, like truly aerosolized diseases. But that's not the case with COVID. The data that we have for COVID suggests that the distribution of infections is very high, that probably half or more of people with COVID will not infect anyone, but a small share of people with COVID will infect hundreds of people. What that means is whether your case has an explosion or not is really driven by these fat tail probabilities. So if you have one super spreader and he infects 100 other people, that's pretty bad, but that's also low risk. So If 100 states each get one imported case, odds are only two of them get a super spreader. And then the odds that that person infects another super spreader are not that high. So of those 100, 
states, you'd expect less than one of them would hit a second super spreader, right? But of course, we had more than one imported case per state, yada, yada. But the point is that the distribution of infection you would, ins- you would expect is very lopsided, which also makes it really difficult to plausibly estimate the impact of policies as well, because there's just so much randomness. Yeah, there's a tremendous amount we don't know about this, and people are getting way out over their ski tips, you know, in terms of predicting, now predicting the future of the of the pandemic. So I kind of want to go there next, which is you put out a tweet that cost me a couple hours of sleep about a week and a half ago. It was looking at the 1918 pandemic and as compared to COVID and how similar the case rates or mortality rates were between the two up to this point. And then looking toward the fall, where people are suggesting we might get a second wave that could be as bad or worse than what we've been dealing with for the last three months. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about that. Are you still as alarmed as you were that night? Or have you seen other things that have mitigated your concern? I remain quite concerned about the fall. I think the summer will muddle through. Social distancing will continue on various levels. Kids are out of school anyways. There are enough places that are still active hotspots that that it will remain kind of on people's minds. A lot of measures will remain in place. And around the world, travel will, will remain quite low, which means the number of imported cases will remain quite low. So for the summer, I think we will see, if not a big decline, at least I don't expect to see like a huge second wave during the summer. Also, because there probably is some degree of heat and sunlight associated seasonality to this. The fall is a big concern. As kids return to school, as social distancing becomes more and more unsustainable, people return to work. As governments relax, I worry a lot about the fall. Now, I don't think that the autumn spike of COVID-19 would be as bad as the 1918 pandemic partly because the, the mortality pattern that we observe for COVID-19 is not the same as the 1918 pandemic. The fatality rate seems to be lower. That is to say, right now, while the death spike we've observed so far for COVID-19 is eerily similar to what we saw in the fall or in the spring of 1918, there's reason to believe that the attack rate thus far has been higher than it was in the spring of 1918 which suggests that the fall spike probably would not be as bad. But I do think it's quite possible that there could be a fall spike several times as bad as what we've been through thus far, perhaps four, five, six times as bad. You're not reassuring me. (laughs) Well, the, the Spanish flu spike in the fall was, I think, 12 times as bad. So not as bad as the Spanish flu. That goes to some of what we're dealing with right now. You know, what led to those huge spikes in October of 1918 were mass rallies in many ways in the big cities around the war effort. And we've got, I keep looking at these pictures of the the demonstration. Yeah, just on that point, I had an uncle, a great uncle, who was put on a troop ship to go to France in the fall of 1918, and he caught the flu on, on the ship on the way over, never saw a moment of fighting because they he was in a hospital for so long and then they just sent him home because it really wrecked his health. He was never the same after that. He lived a long time, but he it really was a, this very transformative event. But 
in his life and, and for the family as well. We've got these mass demonstrations going on in the U.S. You've got demonstrations going on in Hong Kong on different subject matter. But is this an additional reason for alarm, I guess, having these kind of public gatherings? Yeah, it is. It's probably not productive to get into litigating the, the pros and cons of the protests themselves. But it is certainly the case that large amounts of people in close proximity, especially at night after dark, when you don't have the benefit of UV radiation, UV rays killing off the virus pretty quickly. Now, people are mostly wearing masks, so that's good. It is a concern that it may lead to some increased transmission of COVID. Let's shift. This is technically a a podcast about work, so I do want to talk a little bit about work. I'm giving a lot of thought to how can employers create safer workplaces for their employees. And I'm curious, from your experience in Hong Kong, how do employers go about workplace health in these kinds of epidemic situations? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, the big one is masks. We are here in Hong Kong, we are religious about masks. Everybody wears a mask. And it is hot here and it is humid. You step outside and your skin is below the dew point. Water from the air just condenses right on your skin. It is nasty. You wear a mask. Everybody wears a mask. So that's a big part of it. Another part is a lot of people are still working from home. Commuting into the workplace is way down, continues to be. We're seeing somewhat reduced use of public transportation. I don't know what's happening in like factories in Hong Kong, but my guess would be that they're also requiring masks. But the truth is, there's a lot we don't know about this. Uh, There was a draft regulation for workplaces on how to manage respiratory epidemics. The Obama administration developed it with OSHA. It was going to be finalized in 2017. The Trump administration killed it. I don't know if that regulation would have been any good. It might have been full of dumb stuff that wouldn't have worked. But there was going to be a regulation telling employers how to handle this. You know, I think, however, that, that there's a lot we don't know. We don't know if it'd be better to use masks or face shields, whether we need to give gloves, how much distancing we need to, need to have people doing. Workstations here in like open office and stuff have all set up glass or plastic barriers between desks. At restaurants, if there's a long table, there's barriers between sitting areas. So there's all kinds of these things. But actually, we have an opportunity to figure this out. So the U.S. Census Bureau is restarting the census in a number of locations. And I I just wrote a brief about this with Salim Firth at the Mercatus Institute. We argued that one of the things that the Census Bureau can and should do as they restart operations is use it as an opportunity to develop a benchmark standard for safe business practices. Test and retest and repeatedly test their workers as they canvas neighborhoods and try out different measures of protecting their workers and figure out, okay, what can we do to protect workers? What can we do? Can we empirically test what procedures work for keeping workers safe while doing human-to-human business amid a pandemic? So this is an opportunity for us to learn, and the Census Bureau should really experiment with different PPE protection and management strategies on that front. I'd really like to take a look at that. I think that's, those are great suggestions. What about, I mean, this would be particularly relevant in Hong Kong because of the, the weather issues that you, you know, the environmental issues that you mentioned, which is, what are they doing about ventilation systems? Because we hear a lot about, you know, this is one of the big challenges is that you've got, you know, buildings without 
external ventilation, everything's recirculated. How do managing that, or is that even a part of the conversation? It is a part of the conversation, but there's a degree to which that just is what it is. I mean, there's not much you can do. Older buildings in Hong Kong are mostly designed to have natural ventilation anyways. Modern buildings are designed, more recent buildings are designed for the opposite. They're designed to keep in air conditioning and recirculate air. It is what it is. For what it's worth, though, there is no documented case of COVID infection at the building level at this point. During SARS, there was one case of building level infection. It's called the Amoy Gardens case, but it wasn't through air conditioning. It was through a, a malfunctioning sewage system that the virus was breeding in the sewage tank. Yeah, and anytime people flush their toilet, viral particles would, would flush up into the room. And then because in Hong Kong, virtually all bathrooms have a fan that pumps the, the air out, this virus, there's a massive viral plume coming off this building and it infected people in the next building over, which is just unpleasant. And it's worth noting, COVID has the same sewage property. So in fact, one of the early warning signs that we can use to see how a city is doing for COVID is density of COVID and COVID antibodies in the sewage. So there's, there's been research published on this. This yeah. is actually an early warning sign. I think every municipality in America should be rolling out. I saw that too. It was quite startling to see the graph of like, you've got a spike yeah. in sewage weeks before, and then you've got cases two now, weeks that's later. Because, so it, that's partly just because the cases are delayed in reporting. The reality is those cases were probably infected. They were probably occurring at the time that the sewage was spiked. But, it, but it's at least a lot of transmission. Right, right. So that is a real risk is like a bad sewage situation somewhere, particularly in dense areas like New York. But there, there's no documented cases of infection through like building level recirculation. Room level infection may occur, but that's going to that's gonna occur with wind or a fan just as much as air con. So it's not much you can do about that. So this leads me to my question about the problem that we've been having with meat packing facilities in the United States. Have you looked at that? It's something I'm, I've been very concerned about because it hits a vulnerable population, people who, for reasons unrelated to their work, are already at a higher risk of contracting serious illness. It also strikes me as kind of weird that, you know, we've talked about wet markets as being a problem with regard to the emergence of these diseases. Mm -hmm. And we kind of have an analogous thing here in the U.S. with our meat processing facilities being mm -hmm. places where people really catch and spread this disease. So any thoughts right. on that issue? Meat processing is a dirty job and the workers are poorly treated to begin with. And meat is incredibly cheap in America. I think there's a compelling argument to be made that basically meat processing facilities probably need to be providing their workers with full body PPE. I know that that's like one of these like nanny state regulations nobody wants. Can you do that kind of work in full body PPE? We might just have to find a way to, or we might need to become vegetarians. Yeah. I mean, the, the option is, or I mean, I don't know, maybe... Maybe wages for meat workers will rise, but that seems unlikely. It seems more likely that we're just going to have a lot of dead meat processing workers and they're going to infect other people and that's going to infect communities and we're just going to have lots of dead people. So I prefer not to have dead people and I also like bacon. So maybe we're all going to have to pay 50 cents more per pack of bacon. 
in order to cover the cost of meatpacking workers get suitable protection. I will just say thank you very much, Lyman, for spending all this time with us. We so appreciate the work that you're doing, both for AEI and in your other life. When travel lightens up, we hope and expect to see you back in D.C., and maybe we can have a chance to talk again then. Absolutely. I'd love to. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.